Good morning, church. Um, so there was a bit of an error in your bulletin. Uh, there won't be any special music today. That'll, uh, that'll be happening in two weeks. Um, sorry about that. Um, I'd like to invite you at this time to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. Matthew, chapter 4, this morning, as we resume our study through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we took a, a week off for the missions conference, but we're ready to jump right back in. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Now, up to this point, uh, let me just kind of bring us back up to speed where we've been uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. In, chapter, in the first part of chapter 1, Matthew labors to prove to us that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He does so through his genealogy. He traces the lineage of Jesus uh, through David all the way back to Abraham. In the rest of chapters 1 and 2, uh, in the birth and infancy narratives, Matthew uh, takes a special incidents in the life of Jesus and shows how they fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Chapter 3, we are introduced to John the Baptist and his baptizing ministry in the Jordan River in the Judean wilderness. Uh, you remember Jesus comes to be baptized, and Jesus is affirmed publicly by God the Father through the voice from heaven, the Spirit descending upon him in the form of a dove. And then two weeks ago, in the first part of chapter 4, uh, Caleb walked us through the temptation of Christ in the wilderness and how Jesus, as the new and greater Israel, triumphed in the desert over 40 days, what the first Israel failed to do in the desert over 40 years. And that brings us to our text this morning. See, what's happened now is the preparation time for Jesus is over. Preparation of Jesus for his ministry is now complete. And here in the second half of chapter 4 of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is ready to go public. He's ready to go public. He's taking his ministry on the road. He is ready to begin his mission and ministry. And so I'd like to invite you to stand as you are able now as I read Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to read it off my notes instead. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Heavenly Father, speak to us again this morning out of your word. May we hear and obey what is written in it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, as noted a bit ago, Jesus is now ready to go public. But before he does, there is a a shift in geography from Judea in the south of Israel to Galilee in the north. And more specifically, he is going to move from Nazareth of Galilee to Capernaum. Uh, John the Baptist's ministry was in Judea. That's where Jesus was baptized. He was most likely tempted in the Judean wilderness as well. And now... Jesus relocates ultimately to Capernaum. The arrest of John the Baptist seems to be the immediate catalyst for this move. Now, uh, later on in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 14, we'll get much more detail about the arrest of John the Baptist, Um, but all we need to know right now is that John has been arrested. And Jesus, for one reason or another, uses this opportunity to move north and ultimately end up in Capernaum. But this move to Capernaum was not haphazard. It's actually a very strategic move. On the one hand, Capernaum will become Jesus' base of operations for the duration of his ministry in Galilee. It was a much larger city than was Nazareth. It had a greater population than did Nazareth. it would be be a place more conducive to the spread of his message. But more than this, his move to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee fulfills prophecy. Once again, Matthew is taking an episode in the life of Jesus and showing us how it fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And in verses 15 and 16, he's going to quote The prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And this is in a context of messianic prophecy. Because this is just a few verses before uh, the verses that we read at Christmas. You remember the verses we read at Christmas? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and so on. This is just a few verses prior to that. It's in the context of messianic prophecy. Isaiah is foretelling 700 years before the fact that Messiah's ministry will begin in Galilee. Now, I imagine we already know this, but just by way of reminder, this is powerful evidence for the inspiration and authority of the Bible. The Bible was given to us by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter, 
chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, he tells us that no prophecy of Scripture ever came from private interpretation or private origin. He says, holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah wasn't speaking on his own. The Spirit of the living God was upon him to foretell that Messiah would begin his ministry in Galilee. But not only that, I think what this incident shows is that God will use earthly circumstances to fulfill his heavenly purposes. Not just in the life of Jesus, by the way. He does the same in our lives. He will utilize our personal circumstances, things that happen in our lives in the natural, to bring about his plan, his purpose. Let me give you a personal illustration, if I may. In the fall of 2020, my family was ready to move. We had lived for three years in eastern Pennsylvania in a city called Bethlehem, and uh, it's not that we didn't like it. It was just that for reasons that we had, we, we wanted to come back to Florida. And so in October of 2020, we packed up everything we had and um, made the move down to Lakeland. But having come to Lakeland, now what? You know, where are we going to go to church? Where are we going to fellowship? Where are we going to invest our lives, myself, my family? We had tried a few other uh, churches locally, and they're great places, but for one reason or another, it became clear that it just wasn't a fit. Well, I, at the same time all of this was happening, I happened to find out that the music ministry director position was becoming open. And I don't think that was a coincidence. I think God wanted me here. I think God wanted my family here. I believe that God wanted me and my family in your lives. I believe that God wanted all of you in our lives. God uses the events in our lives that may not seem to, maybe they don't make sense to us, but God is using those things to fulfill a higher purpose. Not just for me and my family, but here especially for Jesus. God brings Jesus to Galilee. And he brings him there to penetrate the darkness. Jesus is now there in Galilee to penetrate the darkness with his light. With the light of his glory, with the light of his authority, with the light of his power. Light always dispels darkness, does it not? Right? When you walk into a room, it's dark, you flip on the light switch, the lights come on, the darkness flees. This is true in the natural world, it's just as true in the spiritual world. Jesus has now come to dispel the darkness of sin, the darkness of despair, even the darkness of sickness, as we'll soon see. But exactly how does Jesus dispel this darkness? How does Jesus attack the darkness of sin? It's very simple, actually. He preaches repentance and the nearness of the kingdom of heaven. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Now, interestingly, these are the exact words that were found on the lips of John the Baptist in chapter 3, in verses 1 and 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But now, Jesus is bringing this message to a new place, to Galilee. Now, Caleb uh, did talk about repentance when we considered the ministry of John. Um, So, just to reiterate and summarize what repentance is and what repentance is not. What repentance is is a change of mind and a change of direction. A change of mind and a change of direction. It's like making a U-turn, right? You're in your car and you're going one way and you realize you have to be going the other way. And so what do you do? You make a U-turn. A change of mind and direction. It's more than just feeling sorry or badly about your sin. Although it is that. That's part of it. Certainly, we should... Uh, feel badly about our sin. We should feel remorse. There is definitely an emotional component to repentance, but that's not all. If that sorrow doesn't lead to action, then it's not true biblical repentance. The Apostle Paul will make a similar point in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 7 and verse 10 of 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us that sorrow for sin is good, but only if it leads to repentance. He writes this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. True sorrow for sin leads to concrete actions taken to turn away from it and to turn toward Christ. Is there anything in our lives this morning, your lives, my life, that requires repentance? The Holy Spirit himself will tell us. The Spirit of God will prick each of our consciences if there's anything. And if there is, if there's anything at all that needs repentance, turn away from it, fly to Christ, receive forgiveness and cleansing, and do it while there's still time. Why do I say while there is still time. Why do I say that? Because the reason for repentance is given by Jesus. Jesus doesn't just say repent, he gives a reason. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now many definitions have been given for the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Theologians, scholars, commentators, preachers, many definitions have been given. Most of them are very, very, very good. but you know, how, would, how could we summarize it this morning? Here's how I would understand and summarize the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the rule of the Messiah over a restored Israel, over a restored, in a restored creation. The kingdom of heaven is the rule of the Messiah over a restored Israel in a restored creation. Now, there's much more I could say. Believe me, there is so much more we could say about the kingdom of heaven, and that would not only be a sermon unto itself, it would be a sermon series unto itself. So I'm going to resist the urge. I'll say this, though. The expression itself, the kingdom of heaven, is not found, per se, in the Old Testament. You're not going to find in your Old Testament the expression, the kingdom of heaven. 
But by the time of Christ, it came to encapsulate and summarize the entire Jewish hope from the law and the prophets. It's synonymous with the expression kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, they mean the same thing. They're interchangeable and synonymous expressions. Uh, Matthew uh, prefers kingdom of heaven. He's the only New Testament writer who uses that expression. He will sometimes use kingdom of God, but mostly he prefers kingdom of heaven. The other gospel writers and the rest of the New Testament prefer kingdom of God, but they mean the same thing. And Jesus says that this kingdom is now at hand. It's near. What does he mean by that? Well, I think two things. On the one hand, the kingdom of heaven is already here. It it has arrived in the person and the power of Jesus Christ, and especially in his coming death, resurrection, ascension, and giving of the Holy Spirit. And so the kingdom of heaven is already here. But the kingdom of heaven is not yet in the sense that even though we do experience its powers today, we don't experience them in their fullness. The fullness of the kingdom awaits the second coming, but we must live as if that second coming and if the full, as if the fullness of the kingdom is imminent and at hand. We must live as if it is close. And so Jesus preaches the nearness of the kingdom of heaven, and in so doing, he is demanding a response from his hearers, namely, repentance. How will each of us respond today? But in preaching this message of an imminent kingdom and the need for repentance on the part of his hearers, Jesus, in verses 18 through 22, will not act alone. Jesus is going to now gather others to help share in the ministry of the kingdom of heaven. Like any good rabbi, Jesus will have disciples. He will have disciples to assist him. He will have disciples so that he may train them. And eventually, he will send out these disciples to go make yet more disciples. Jesus, in a sense, is gathering helpers. I came across this quote while I was preparing this message. I really love it. It says, the only person who never needed any help chose helpers. The only man in history who never needed help went and found people to help him. And that's an encouragement to me. You see, when God called these men and when he calls us to do the work of the ministry, it isn't because he really needs the help. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. He is able to accomplish his purposes quite apart from any help from you or from me. But But he calls us to serve and help in the kingdom of heaven because of grace. Simply by grace, He gives us the privilege of service. He calls us to to serve in the kingdom for the joy and the delight that it gives him. And as we serve in the power that God supplies, guess what? We get to experience the exact same joy and delight. God calls us to serve 
by grace. And Jesus now calls these men by grace. In this case, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee and he finds two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. Now in these verses, there's a similar progression for both sets of brothers. In other words, the story's gonna kind of repeat itself. You're gonna, you're gonna find the same things. In both cases, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. He observes uh, brothers working at their fishing trade. He calls them to abandon that trade and follow him full time. And each set of brothers immediately and without delay leaves everything behind to follow Jesus. Now, I think that more than likely, these four guys already knew Jesus. They were acquainted, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They knew Jesus already. Uh, If you go to the Gospel of John in chapter 1 and toward the end in verses 35 to 42, we read of the first meeting of Jesus with these disciples. So this is not their first meeting. They probably already knew him. And, and I stress this for, but I stress it for two reasons. Number one, we, we should not imagine that Jesus has some kind of ethereal glow. You know, he's not walking around with some kind of, of magnetism that, you know, just mesmerizes these guys and, to, and, and encourages them to give up all behind, give up everything and follow a total stranger. But let's not soft sell the fact that this is still an important moment. It's a key turning point and a true watershed moment in their their relationship with Jesus. Yes, I think they already knew him, but now there's a change. Jesus is calling them now to make a change, to leave behind their vocation, their secular vocation, good as it was, and now to follow him full time and to become fishers of people. They will now be fishers for people. Like Jesus, they too will now call others to repent because of the imminent coming of the kingdom of God. Not because Jesus really needed them, but because he loves them as an act of grace. And like these early disciples, we too have a holy calling to fish for people. And this idea of fishing for people, for winning people to Jesus, actually has its roots in the Old Testament. This concept was not brand new. In Proverbs 11, verse 30, it says, He who wins souls is wise. Do you want to walk in wisdom? Do you want to be wise? Well, one way to do it is to win souls, is to call people to follow Jesus. Similarly, the prophet Daniel in chapter 12, verse 3, another passage about the messianic kingdom, about the coming of the Messiah. Daniel 12, verse 3, it says, They that turn many to righteousness shall shine as the stars forever and ever. And by calling fishermen to become fishers for people, I think there is a a callback to the prophet Ezekiel as well. Uh, In the 
at the very end of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is brought in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he sees this magnificent temple descending down from heaven. And he is given this very detailed tour and description of this temple. Now, I will say I don't think we are meant to interpret that temple vision strictly literally. At one point in this temple vision, there's a vision of a river flowing from the midst of the temple. And in chapter 47 of Ezekiel, verses 9 and 10, we read this. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. In verses 19 and 22, Matthew further notes the urgency of Jesus' call to become fishers for people. It says in both cases that these men left their fishing boats and their nets immediately. No delay. There's no time to lose. The business of following Jesus and making fishers and becoming fishers for people is urgent. And again, like Peter and Andrew and like James and John, we are also called by Jesus to become fishers of people. Is there anyone right now maybe that the Spirit of God is bringing to your mind who needs to hear the gospel? I can think of a few. Will we heed the Spirit's prompting? You see, each one of us in this room that believes in Jesus, we were fished for by someone else. Someone preached the gospel to me. Someone preached the gospel to you. Each one of us can fish for people who will in turn fish for people who will fish for people, and so on. Peter, for example, discipled Mark, who not only wrote the gospel that bears his name, but church historians believe that Mark probably founded the church in Alexandria, Egypt. And that church in Alexandria, Egypt, eventually produced a man by the name of Athanasius, who defended the deity of Jesus Christ. Another church tradition that most historians believe is very reliable tells us that John, who's called by Jesus in this passage, discipled a man named Polycarp, who discipled a man named Irenaeus, both men of whom became very important in the early church. Jesus desires that we make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, and so on and so on. Will we make disciples? We never know what kind of legacy we'll leave behind as we're faithful to call others to follow Jesus. Only time will tell. But as Jesus calls for fishers of men, in verses 23 through 25, he begins his public ministry in earnest. These verses um, give us a, a summary statement of Jesus' itinerant ministry in Galilee. Now, it's given twice. 
uh, verses 23 and the first part of verse 24. And then again, the second part of verse, or the first, yes, the second part of verse 24 and into verse 25. Jesus' miracle working and growing popularity as a result are what Matthew is stressing. And it happens because Jesus is going to combine the preaching and teaching of the gospel with a ministry of miraculous healing. The New Testament scholar Daryl Bach, a very respected New Testament scholar, writes, Word and work are side by side, functioning together in Jesus' ministry. Preached word and supporting deed are a capsule of the nature of Jesus' ministry. And I believe that this is still a good paradigm for ministry today. Gospel preaching and demonstration. So let's consider, just for a moment, this word-work combination so essential to Jesus' ministry, beginning with the preaching of the word. Biblical preaching is simply the public declaration of the word of God. Now, it's more than teaching, although teaching is part of it. But what it is, it means to herald to announce, to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord and to call for a response from those who hear. It's not a dialogue. It's a declaration. That's what biblical preaching is. That's what Jesus is doing in the synagogues of Galilee. He's preaching and declaring, announcing, and heralding the coming of the kingdom of heaven. But the proof that the kingdom is, in fact, dawning, it's found in the power and in the authority of Jesus to heal. To say it again, Jesus accompanies his teaching and preaching of the kingdom of heaven with miraculous works of powerful and supernatural healing. And notice how comprehensive is this healing ministry. In verse 24, it says, They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them. There is no limit to the kind of afflictions which our Lord did not and could not heal. But I want you to also notice that he healed spiritual as well as physical afflictions as well. Verse 24, Matthew tells us that Jesus healed those oppressed by demons. What that means is to be oppressed by a demon, to be demonized, is to be literally under the control and power of a demon. The power, but the power of Jesus is so great that even people literally under the control and power of a demonic spirit can be set free. And Jesus' healing of those demonized, especially, is a declaration of war against Satan. From this point on, the kingdom of heaven is waging a holy war against the kingdom of darkness. 
But not just Jesus. We also wage war against the devil's kingdom of darkness, do we not? Is that not Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 6 when he teaches us concerning the armor of God? And what is that sword? The only offensive piece of that. The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. Jesus healed and cast out demons to demonstrate his unique authority and the power and reality of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus will become even more explicit about this later in the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus will say plainly, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now I want to stress again that the kingdom of heaven has not yet come in all its fullness. We don't always see the healing that we want to see. It's true that ultimate healing awaits the second coming of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. But I wonder if we have faith for God to work his healing power today to set people free, to heal bodies. See, Jesus healed not only to demonstrate his unique authority, but also because of his compassion. Jesus healed because he had compassion on sick people and people who were oppressed by demons and people living in darkness. In Mark chapter 1, we're told that Jesus healed a leper because why? He was moved with compassion for him. And in Luke chapter 7, he raises up the only son of a widow because he was moved with compassion. Jesus is still compassionate today, amen? Amen. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I believe that Jesus is available today to heal. Do you need healing? Physical, emotional, spiritual? Does anyone need to be set free from lying spiritual forces. If you do, if, if there's anyone who needs healing, come to Jesus today. He is not only able, but he is willing, even eager, to touch you with his power to renew out of a tender heart of compassion. But as Jesus carries on this healing ministry, it is not long before word gets out about this man who is moving so powerfully in healing. To put it in modern terms, Jesus is going viral. In verse 24, excuse me, in verse 24 we read that his fame spread. And in verse 25, we're told that great crowds followed him from all over the immediate region. Look how comprehensive is that list of, of locales. 
This is literally all over the, the immediate area. Jesus' growing popularity is a natural byproduct of his miracles and of his authoritative teaching and preaching. Now, at this point, Matthew only records the fact of Jesus' increasing fame without any commentary. He just points it out. Jesus' fame is growing. But we know, and Jesus knew, that fame is fickle. Controversy will eventually follow because with fame comes scrutiny. And that scrutiny will eventually come from the religious leaders. Adulation can very quickly become excoriation, and no one knew that more than Jesus. In the Gospel of John, chapter 2, at one point we read, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus' fame was growing in Galilee at the beginning of his public ministry there. He was famous. Is Jesus famous today? Is Jesus famous in your life? Is he famous in my life? Jesus' fame was spreading through the preaching of the word of God accompanied by miracles of power. It was true for Jesus. It was true for the apostles. And I believe it's true for us as well today. That that power is still available. John chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus says very plainly, whoever believes in me, the works that I do, he will do. I want to challenge us. I want us us to pray for power and authority for making Jesus' name famous here in Lakeland, in Polk County, in the state of Florida, all across this nation and around the world. Let us become fishers for people who fish for people who fish for people. And if there's anyone who needs healing today, whether it be physical, emotional, spiritual, come to Jesus. Call upon him in faith. Yes, it's true, full and total healing awaits the consummation at the second coming and the resurrection from the dead. Yes, that's true. But we can still taste the powers of the age to come today. Will you come to Jesus today? Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it not only instructs us, and te- instructs us and teaches us, but also challenges us. I pray that we would hear and obey. I pray that your power to heal and restore and renew would come upon this body so that Jesus and not me or anyone else in this room may become famous. Let Christian Edmiston be forgotten, but let Jesus be famous. 
I pray that your spirit would now move among us to that end. And most immediately, especially as we prepare to take this ordinance. And all this I pray in the name of him who, as to his humanity as David's heir, and as to his deity as David's Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.